Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good afternoon, everyone, and let me add my own welcome to the Royal Academy and to this incredible room. Look around you. This is the Joshua Reynolds room. It is not often that a lecturer has any reason whatsoever to say something about the place in which he is lecturing, but you might, for those of you who have not been here before, you might like to know that there are historical spirits in this room. Uh, none of which, none of whom are going to harm anybody, but they're present. Uh, you might wish to know that it was here in this room that one George Frederick Handel composed between 1713 and about 1715 when he worked for the third Earl of Burlington who built Burlington House. You might hear a harpsichord in the background from time to time. <laughs> you might also like to know that on the 1st of July, 1859, in this very room, uh, John Lyell, who was the president of the uh, Linnaean Society, read two letters for the first time to members of an audience. These letters were from Charles Darwin and Alfred Wallace Russell, announcing their discoveries of the origin of species and therefore publicly the beginning of the theory of evolution, which was here in this room. Darwin was not here. He did not read these letters himself because he was at home mourning the death of his son, 19 months old, and Wallace Russell was in Indonesia. With that, and, and by the way, you might also want to note that in, uh, from 1874 to 1927, this very room was the library of the Royal Academy. So you can imagine also the other Royal Academicians coming here looking up their Vasares and whatever. Now, let me get my leotard glasses on so that I can see what I'm doing, and we will begin to look at something a little more serious. Leotard. Leotard in London. I'm showing you two uh, images, which I hope you can see, two self-portraits of him without a beard. Now, I show this to you because most of the time when we look at Leotard, we look at Leotard with a beard. And indeed, that will become one of his very important attributes in the way in which people saw him and the way in which he promoted himself. In this instance, a self-portrait in the Uffizi, 1744, which is one of the great portraits of the 19th century. And in fact, it's one of the real works that I wanted to have here at the exhibition, and unfortunately, it, it could not come. Please note that at the right, I'm showing you uh, in the Uffizi, where the portrait was commissioned. This was, of course, in the gallery of self-portraits. The portrait of Leotard was, of course, right here at the bottom. Uh, and everyone would have noticed that beard. That beard, we have to talk about that beard, because while he was known in Europe, and particularly in London, as the Turk. It was, in fact, not his Turkish costume, which was the most incredible thing about Leotard, but rather that beard that you see here, which is actually much shorter than it was when he went to London uh, about 10 years later. I have trimmed my own beard so that I would not compete with Leotard. <laughs> 
But that beard will, in fact, become a very, very important aspect of his iconography. Picture this. Picture this man in this costume with that hat walking down Piccadilly in 1754 or 1755 or 1774 or 1775, as indeed he must have. This in a society that was basically clean-shaven. Georgian men did not wear beards, so that the beard, more than anything else, was a very distinguishing feature of the way in which Lyotard projected his own image to Georgian society. And this was so odd for the Georgians in London that there, as it was, by the way, in Paris, where he also wore this very long beard, uh, it was so odd that we find vestiges of it in literature. During his lifetime, in 1784, a very strange book appeared in France and was later translated and published in, um, in English and published here in London, a book that is called Pagonology. Pagonology. I don't suspect that any of you know what that means. I did not. I had to look it up. It is a treatise on beards. It is the study of beards. The author wrote about the history of beards and why we wore them, <clears throat> sorry, and why we didn't wear them. And when he came to modern times, he noted that Leotard's beard, he mentions him by name, that Leotard's beard was an imposing appearance to people greedy of novelty, as Leotard must have been. And that this was something that, quote unquote, raised him above the crowd. This was in his own lifetime. Even more interesting, in terms of Leotard and his beard, is of course a, a, a very interesting novel called Lydia, which was published in 1755 by the artist, by the playwright John Shabir. I forced myself to read it because I know Leotard was mentioned, and I can tell you it was quite a Travail. It's not easy to read. But Leotard appears in this novel twice. The first time is a very interesting example in which the author has a discourse on um, chastity. And he, he exemplifies chastity in terms of the historical image of Susanna and the elders, which comes, of course, from the book of Daniel. Now, <clears throat> his view, Chabert's view, of this incident is interesting because he, he, he claims that Susanna's refusal to agree to give herself to the elders was not because of a moral issue, but rather because she was repulsed by men who were trying to seduce her who had beards. <laughs> and indeed mentions that uh, she could never much be tempted by two old fellows with beards, like the stuffing of an old chair, as shaggy as Lyotard in life. <laughs> the second scene is even more interesting in the same book. The scene is set in Fairland Court, where Arabella, vice countess of Flimsy, you see why I had trouble reading this book, it was incredibly difficult, She's being courted by four suitors, and none of the suitors is suitable, <clears throat> as it were. But her most ardent suitor is, of course, a man by the name of Mr. Sweetwood. And for some reason, he has absolutely no chance whatsoever to uh, winning his beloved. But he wants to see her again. So what does he do? 
he disguises himself and he appears in Fairwood Court as a bearded Jew who is selling jewels and other toys. And at this point, the Earl, who is the father of this young woman, says to the disguised Sweetwood, Prithee, Ismael, does that beard assist you in your trade as it does Lyotard? 1755, that's exactly when Lyotard was in England and in London. So you can see that this is something that was, of course, a very important, hugely important attribute to Lyotard and something that did set him above the crowd. And you can see it here even later in life. And this is a print from 1783 which shows the Place Bel Air uh, in Geneva. And one can see the little bearded man here who is Lyotard, who leads, like a caliph, a crowd that comes in very distinguishable, as you can see, and in this wonderful miniature, which is a silhouette, which was uh, done by Jean Hubert, who was known as Hubert Voltaire, because he was a very good friend of Voltaire and made dozens and dozens of studies of Voltaire, both in painting, drawing, and silhouette. This is, uh, we know from, it's a miniature, about this big, and from the back, we know that he did it from life. And, Furthermore, it was said that at this point, 1783 or so, it was said at this point that Hubert was so accomplished that he made no sketches first. He just cut. It's quite, quite possible. I can assure you it's quite a remarkable piece. Um, Leotard's fame, therefore, was to some extent projected by his clothes, his manner, his exoticism, his beard, but also, of course, by his art. By this time, by the time that he went to London, the chocolate girl, La Chocolatier of 1745, which had been bought by Mr. Algarotti, whose portrait is here in the exhibition, was, of course, something that was extremely, extremely known. If we define a work that is reproduced and reproduced and reproduced and reproduced as iconic, then this is indeed an iconic work. It is probably Leotard's most famous piece, and it's a piece that has been reproduced ad infinitum throughout later times, and particularly by the Walter Baker Chocolate Company. Walter Baker Chocolate Company comes from Massachusetts, and in 1883, they bought the pattern, the patent for the image. They were the only ones who were, who were allowed to reproduce the image on their own chocolate boxes. Uh, which you can see here, and indeed on their own chocolate. But this is not enough. You can also have <coughs> bookmarks and spoons of the chocolate lady, which gives you some idea of exactly how very, very large this image is, and even in our own day. Let's take a look at these two. On the left, this is a work by a contemporary artist, Elena Zoloniski. Um, she has transformed the image into now serving a Coke and a hamburger. <laughs> and the image at the right, the chocolate vandal, was created by a French painter by the name of Thierry Guetta, who has the wonderful pseudonym of Mr. Brainwash, and is a very good friend of Bansky's, who has now transformed this image of the chocolate person into this incredible 
uh, inventive but also witty image. But uh, once again, to show you that she is present, and this is why I say it is a very iconic image, because we have her everywhere. Imagine, for example, if you're walking down Piccadilly now, and you want to stop by Hatchards, buy some books. But you can't remember which books, so you have to call your husband or your wife and ask for the title. Leotard has you covered, because you can have an iPhone cover with our famous lady, or you can have a handbag to put all of the books that you've bought into it. And there's something even more perverse about the commercialization of Leotard's image, and what is perverse is that you can even sleep with her. You can buy a duvet. <laughs> on the market, not too cheap, but if you have that fetish, you can sleep with a leotard, as it were. Now, let's get to something a little more serious, shall we? Leotard's great patrons in England, and one of the reasons why he has English associations is, of course, two patrons, Sir William Ponsonby, who would become the Earl of Bessborough, the second Earl of Bessborough, at your left, and Everard Faulkner, who was the uh, British ambassador to Constantinople when um, Leotard was there. It is, of course, because of these two figures that we have the backbone of Leotard's British connections. Now, it's important to note this because in some of the works that I'm going to show you further on in our talk, you're going to see that they emanate from this patronage. Either they're friends of Ponsonby's or they're people that he knew or people that he suggested Leotard see, there is that connection almost always in regard to these two figures. And we'll see as we go along how very important they were in the English adventure of Leotard. But even <clears throat> while he was in Constantinople, and as you recall the story, Ponsonby was in Rome and Florence, and they heard of Leotard, and they met Leotard, and he invited Leotard to come with him to Constantinople, which he did. And one of his tasks, of course, was to be the artist journalist on board. And he met Faulkner, who was then the British ambassador, and Faulkner convinced him to stay longer, because Ponsonby only stayed less than a year, whereas Leotard would stay for four years in Constantinople. And it was during that four-year period in Constantinople where Faulkner gave Leotard introductions to the very substantial English community that existed in Constantinople at this time. This was a merchant community, particularly in tobacco, silks, all sorts of uh, trade was going on, including Francis Levitt, whom you see here in this absolutely wonderful small oil painting, which is now in the Louvre, which is dated about 1740. Francis Levitt was an English merchant who uh, was, in fact, very, very important in the commercial trade. He is here with probably his lover, whose name is Helen Glavani, who was the daughter of the Consul of France. So you can see that in this very important community, uh, Leotard had sought out and received commissions from the British, thus earning, as you will, a certain background in the idea of Britain as a country that could offer commissions, money, work. And these are, these are important considerations for any artists of the 18th century, as you can well imagine. Um, perhaps what is interesting to bring out at this point is that 
I was not joking about the chocolate girl. This was an image that was very, very important and literally helped to uh, increase Lyotard's fame in Paris, as it was the case in London. But people did hear about his works, and one of the most important, of course, is David Garrick. This is 1751. This is before Lyotard came to London. We know the story. Garrick had been to Paris and had, as he said, had heard of Lyotard. We don't know how, but he had heard of Lyotard. And having heard of Lyotard and Garrick being very interested in the arts, as he always was during his lifetime, sought him out in the studio. We know that on the 13th of June, 1751, they met. Uh, Garrick left a very spotty journal about what he had experienced in Paris, and only it's, it's only several pages, and it's not very complete at all. But he, he noted that he met and that he found um, Lyotard's work very like, meaning that, of course, they were very uh, respectful of the sitters. He, he approved of what he saw and commissioned his portrait, which you see here on the left. I'm showing it to you in relation to a portrait of Garrick done by <clears throat> Benjamin Wilson at around the same time. And it's important to see the two together. I hope you can see them. The difference is quite interesting because at this time, Garrick was 34 years old. He was well known. He was, of course, a very important actor even at that time. But there are not a very large number of portraits of Garrick at this particular time in his life. So, in this sense, if we take a look at the picture by Benjamin Wilson, we see a rather older man, it seems to me, and one who is very staid in the way in which he is portrayed. This is very much a traditional portrait. There's nothing much one can say about it in terms of piercing something of Garrick's own uh, special character. In Lyotard's portrait, we see something a bit different. Uh, there is an expression in that face. It's very theatrical. The eyebrows are down. Uh, as if he is pensive or he's thinking of something, as if he's perhaps thinking of a role. Uh, there's something that intimates a relationship with the sitter, which I feel is not the case at all with the work of Benjamin Wilson. We know that Garrick posed five times during the sittings, five sittings, always in the morning, by the way. In the afternoon, he wrote that sometimes he had lunch with uh, Leotard. They spoke about many things. Garrick said he was a very sensible man, unaffected, but a little vain like all painters. And he was probably quite right. The pose with a hand coming out like this, which we will see again, of course, is a very intriguing one. And I wonder if it was not used again in another context, which you can see here. This is the print uh, of the Garrick portrait by James McCardell. Uh, he was one of the early English mezzotint artists of great, great quality who did, uh, I think, 38, 39 portraits of Reynolds. But what I'm showing you is McArdle's own image of David Garrick at the right in the role of an auctioneer. Now, this is interesting because we have a similar pose, as you can see. And Garrick here is playing a role. And this role is from Samuel Foote's play, which is called Taste. 
It's a very interesting play that was done in 1752. So we're about the same, almost one year after the, the picture of, uh, that uh, Lyotard did of Garrick. And it's a comedy, a very strange comedy. Again, I forced myself to read it. And I can tell you, research can be very difficult sometimes. Uh, Mr. Garrick, who wrote the prologue himself, plays Peter Puff here. He's the auctioneer. And it's a play about taste, but taste in terms of the art object, taste in terms of auctioneers, and do they really sell good works? Do they cheat? Do they sell works that are not authentic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things that's interesting is that it is in this play, 1752, that Garrick says these words which give us a very good idea about the importance of the foreign artist. Let us not forget that when Leotard came to London, foreign artists were not always particularly welcome. This is what Garrick says in the prologue that you see here. Tis said virtue to such a height is grown. All artists are encouraged, but our own. Be not deceived. I here declare an oath. I never yet sold goods of foreign growth. Never sent commissions out to Greece or Rome my best antiquities are made at home. I've Romans, Greeks, Italians near at hand, true Britons all, and living in the Strand. <laughs> and indeed, this will become a very important issue when Leotard himself comes to England uh, in 1754. This is a very curious picture that I have to show you because it's something that is very little known. It's a very complex, believe me, a very complex uh, uh, cartoon satire, as the English can do. Uh, one has a long, long effort to read it. It was once attributed to Hogarth, but it's certainly not Hogarth. It is probably George Bingham the Younger. And it dates to before 1768. Why before 1768? I'll tell you in a minute. It's called A Scene of the Pantomime Entertainment Lately Exhibited, as you can see here. It is a very curious kind of monster that we see here who has no body, and you can see he says there's no body there, various heads coming out, and on the left we have William Chambers. On the right we have Joshua Kirby. Now this is at a time when Kirby was the president of the Incorporated Society of Artists. And Chambers, at that particular time, was in the midst of trying to help establish a royal academy, to which Kirby knew that it would overtake his own institution and therefore wanted to be a founding member. And it's sort of a duel between these two figures. Uh, Kirby would not be a founding member. But what is important here is that in the midst of all of this, we have Alan Ramsey, the painter, who at this particular time was the painter of George III and was, of course, one of the tastemakers. Now, what's going to happen here, and you'll see it very, very clearly, is that it is, they are raging against foreign artists coming to London. And some of them will say, oh, I have, I, have, uh, I, have, I have studied abroad. Can I still come here, et cetera, et cetera. And finally, this detail here, you can see it here, and it's marked Lyotard. The puppet, the oriental puppet, who is now put to seed, 
cut off, done with, and marked silenced. This is, of course, the attitude that is to be considered when Leotard came. Artists were jealous. They were terribly jealous. We all know Joshua Reynolds' opinion of, of uh, uh, Leotard and his pastels, huh? what ladies do when they paint for amusement. <laughs> Indeed, would Reynolds' ghost look at my exhibition and say the same thing? I sincerely doubt it. So the institution of a foreign artist in London and in the London scene in 1753, of course, was not an easy one. But Leotard had a very important backer, and that backer was Horace Walpole. Horace Walpole has a very important role to play in Leotard's early works in regard to uh, his London experiences. I'm showing you at the right the miniature, which is marvelously exhibited here, which comes from Her Majesty the Queen, uh, and the print that Walpole had made of the image for his own scrapbook at Strawberry Hill. Now, it's interesting to note that Walpole had uh, an interest in Leotard before he came well before he came to London because, in fact, he had commissioned uh, Leotard without having met him, but through his sister in Paris, he had commissioned him for various works of authors that he was particularly interested in, particularly Marivaux. Uh, what you see at the left is the print that Leotard, uh, the, not the print, but it was a watercolor which we no longer have, and this is the print that uh, Walpole made of the image, or had made of the image, to show uh, uh, his features. At the right, you can see <clears throat> an image by Michel Van Loo around the same time, shows you this wonderful author. Mariva was an author, and Leopold, um, Walpole will talk about the fact that he had really enjoyed Marivaux's work, particularly a, a work called La Vie de Marianne. It's a French Pamela by Richardson, about the same style. It was issued in 11 parts in 1747, and Walpole talks about having really, really loved this work, and therefore commissioned uh, Leotard in 1752 to do a portrait of it. Leotard did, and he delivered it personally to uh, Walpole at Strawberry Hill on the 4th of March, 1753. It was one of the portraits that he was supposed to deliver. The second one, he did not. Now, Walpole also commissioned a portrait of Joyau de Crébillon, whom you see at the left and at the right. Neither of these is by Leotard. At the left, the work is, in fact, by a painter by the name of Gautier d'Agoti. It's a pastel in the Louvre. And the one at the right is by Quentin Latour. It looks to me a little bit like a Lucien Freud avant la lettre. Huh? Very strange, but lovely. Why did Leotard not deliver the portrait? I'll tell you. Uh, when he was doing the portrait of Marivaux, uh, Leotard made it known that he knew Crébillon Personally, Crébillon was an author who wrote a book called Le Sofa. Now, this is a very erotic, libertine book, which, uh, once again, uh, Mr. Walpole enjoyed tremendously. He says, exclamation points, it's admirable. He read it in February 1742. It's one of these incredible tales. Yes, I 
went through it again, and it was very difficult reading, but very amusing. It deals with uh, a man by the name of Amanzai, and his soul is condemned to inhabit a series of sofas. And he cannot be reincarnated in human form until two virgin lovers had consummated their passion on him. You can well imagine <clears throat> the adventures that we go through in this book. By the way, uh, we can laugh at it, but it was very, very much read in England. We know that the Earl of Chesterfield imported 300 copies. And if you look at, there's, I can't remember which print by Hogarth, but there's a print by Hogarth, one of the series in which Le Sofa appears, the book. So one of the libertines was reading it at the time. Be that as it may, Lyotard told uh, Walpole through his agent, his sister, that uh, in fact he knew Crébillon personally and could get him to pose. Would he like a portrait? Yes, was the answer. He began to work on the portrait, and of course, as he was finishing the portrait, and this we know from Leotard's own letters, and not only Leotard's letters, but also Walpole's letters, when he finished it, Crébillon said, well, of course, you'll make a copy for me. Uh, Leotard said, well, if we do that, that means I have to have a double fee. 16 guineas was what was charged. Uh, Leotard wanted a, a, a second fee in order to do the copy. Uh, apparently it was too difficult to get Walpole's answer, will he pay a second fee of 16 guineas to have Lyotard copy the Crébillon? Apparently no. And what Crébillon did was he kept the picture. And we've never seen it since. But while Lyotard was in England and with Horace Walpole at Strawberry Hill, he did commission uh, Leotard to do this wonderful miniature of his nephew, George Walpole, third Earl of Orford, which was dated March 1754. You see it at the left. It is a miniature which incidentally uh, is on ivory, uh, as some of Leotard's works are. There's one wonderful example of that in the exhibition. And at the right, you see how Walpole kept his collection of miniatures. Oop, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Uh, he's here. And for those of you who have a very, very good eye, the self-portrait that I showed you with the long beard that belongs to the queen, of which Walpole had a copy, is here. This is a, uh, George Walpole, of course, was a flagrant uh, gambler. He was the one who was also very much responsible for selling his grandfather's collection of paintings to Catherine the Great of Russia, 36,000 pounds. Uh, was completely, completely thought of as a national calamity because the British Museum had also wanted to have this collection. And uh, in his later years was completely and completely nuts. He died insane as a matter of fact, but it's a beautiful portrait, and it's a portrait, by the way, that was in the collection of T.S. Eliot until just a few years ago. And we also know that Walpole commissioned the portrait of Henry Fox that you see at the left, and then the image of um, Fox as engraved by the same James McCardell that we had before. Uh, Fox was a great friend of Robert Walpole. He would become a great friend of Horace Walpole. He was 
Lord Secretary of the Treasury, he was Secretary of War, and he probably misappropriated 400,000 pounds in funds. <laughs> One of the interesting things also about Walpole is not only commissioning works, but also buying works of Lyotard, including this example that you see on the left, which is uh, the portrait of a Frenchman by the name of Claude Alexander Bonneval, who took on the name of Ahmed Pasha. He was a, a journeyman military man who went all over. He worked for Louis XIV. He worked for the Prince of Savoie. And he offered his services to the Pasha in Turkey and converted to Islam, as a matter of fact. He was a very good friend of Casanova. He was a good friend of Montesquieu and even of Leibniz. So he was a very intelligent man and a man who corresponded with some of the greats. But he was also extremely brutal. Uh, he was a butcher, as a matter of fact. But he sat for Leotard probably three times. There are three versions of this. This is one of the drawings that is signed 1741. And you see at the, oops, sorry. And you see at the right, at the top here, this is in uh, Walpole's catalog. This was, in fact, given to Faulkner, the same Everett Faulkner that I showed you earlier against William Ponsonby, uh, but Faulkner died in 1759, and it was uh, Walpole who bought one of the versions of it, and you can see, in fact, that it is here hanging in Strawberry Hill, here, in a different version, but the same leotard. So, this aspect of collecting by English patrons, such as Walpole. This would, of course, take on a great role in terms of William Ponsonby, as you can see here. Once again, the portrait that I showed you earlier, and one of the variations of it. Because this portrait by Leotard, which is in, of course, the exhibition, would become <clears throat> sort of the key to how Ponsonby is represented for a very good time. This is a painting by attributed to Jeremiah Davison. Uh, again, you can see that it's very much copied after Leotard. One of the great collectors of Leotard was Ponsonby. He would at one time probably own more than 40 of them, and perhaps as many as 70. Depends on how we look at the literature. Some say more, some say less. And of course, all of the Ponsonby papers have never been completely exhausted. Some of them have, were burned, as a matter of fact, so we don't know. But some of his collection was very, very much uh, part of Leotard's interests. He owned the chocolate woman, Dutch chocolate woman that you see here, which is in the exhibition. He had bought that in Leotard's sale in 1774. Here in London, he paid 39 pounds. Uh, he also owned the drawing that you see at the right that was recently acquired by the British Museum, acquired in 2010. And most amazingly, he bought that wonderful, wonderful trompe l'oeil that you see on the left, which is now in the Frick Collection in New York and is loaned uh, specifically for this exhibition, this wonderful painting on silk. Uh, as he also, that one he paid how much for? Not 39, he paid 10 pounds 10. Wow. And another, uh, the Dejeuner, which you see here. But you know, there's another aspect of uh, uh, Ponsonby's collection, which I should just mention, and that is Dutch painting. This is very unusual. He was one of the few painters at this time who had a very choice collection of Dutch painting. And this was not at all in his interest and not at all in his field. This was a man who collected classical things, essentially, beside Leotard. But he was interested in a couple of works that he did buy. And I'm not 
at all convinced that it was a question of his taste. And I'm wondering if Lyotard, who did sell, buy and sell Dutch paintings, might not have had a hand in building up his collection of Dutch paintings. Here you see a Kuip and a Hals, which are both now in the Metropolitan Museum. But Ponsonby, as I said, will play a very interesting and very important role in the way in which Leotard works. And one example that I want to delve on just a little bit is something that is very unusual. It is his own, Leotard's own portrait of Ponsonby that you see here. There are two versions of this. One that Ponsonby had commissioned himself, which is at Welbeck, and the second one is the copy that Leotard made for himself, which is now in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, and that's the one that you see here. Now, from all of the portraits of Leotard that you've seen up to now, and the ones in the exhibition, you can see that this is a very unusual example, something that is quite remarkable. Um, Leotard did not do portraits like this very often. There is an example in which he, in fact, did the portrait of the Empress Maria Theresa as a bust. And, of course, it is not inconsistent with producing portraits à l'antique at this particular time. And this is important because the collection of William Ponsonby was very, 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 very much geared to the antique. He had his house built, Roehampton, you see it on the left, it still exists, part of Roehampton University. On the right is a drawing by, a, a study by uh, Sir John Soane that he made in order to give a lecture at the Royal Academy. Uh, that he used at this particular time. Ponsonby had enormous interest in classical antiquity, and in some of these he would, make, he would have drawings made of his own collection. You see on the left part of a sarcophagus uh, drawn by an Italian painter by the name of Calderi. It's actually in two sheets, and you can't see it all, but it's seven feet long. Uh, and it was a relief that, in fact, he put into his garden at Roehampton. And at the right, you see another example from his collection. It was voluminous, this collection. The collection would be sold in 1801, and some of the purchasers were some of the great uh, collectors of the classical antiquity, like Charles Townley and Sir John Soane. I'm showing you two cinerariums. This is where ashes were placed, uh, Roman cinerarium, which came from the Besborough collection. Sir John Soane would, in fact, buy uh, 13 examples of uh, works from the Besborough collection. You can still see them in the Soane Museum, not very far. One aspect which has been pretty much overlooked in the Ponsonby collection, which will have a bearing on Lyotard, is his collection of gems. He was an avid collector of gems. He bought an enormous amount from the fourth Earl of Chesterfield, from the Medina collection. He had well over 150 gems and cameos, most of them antique, some of them from the Renaissance, some as far as the Baroque period, but essentially late antiquity and early Renaissance. I'm showing you at the left a, an, a gem that was set into a ring showing Achilles. At the right, I'm showing you a uh, portrait of Lucius Verus from the 17th century, which is now in the British Museum. Uh, it is very, very interesting to see how this collection of gems would influence Leotard in the portrait. And I'll show you how that is done. He lost interest in the collection in 1761 after his wife died. 
And as a result, he decided to sell the collection of gems and of cameos. Uh, he had hired Johann Lorenz Natter to catalog these works. Natter, you may not know, he was a gem engraver who came to England in 1741 and was one of the great experts of cameos and gems of this particular period. He traveled very, very widely. He was a member of the Society of Antiquaries just next door. He was a member of the Royal Society. He worked at the Royal Mint. He was said to have made copies of antique gems for forgery, but this is probably not the case because when he did make a copy, he signed it with his own signature. But in 1754, he published a very important treatise, which is still very interesting and still very widely used. And you can see here that he made a catalog of the Bessborough collection, William Ponsonby's collection. But at the same time, not only did he do that, but he also made portraits in cameo of William Ponsonby and his wife. The work at the left is very interesting, 1750 or so, perhaps 1751. It's onyx, about two centimeters big, about this big, very, very tiny piece. It's carved so magnificently that it's almost transparent. You can hold it up and see right through it. It's signed at the left, um, you can't see it, but it's here, signed at the left, W. Lord Duncannon. Duncannon was Ponsonby's title before he became the Earl of Bessborough, and he would not become the Earl of Bessborough until 1758, so it had to be done before 1758, but usually it's dated about 1750. I suspect, quite honestly, that it was the source for the way in which they decided to make the image of William Ponsonby. And you can see here in comparing the two that what we have is really Leotard making, sculpting in pastel the image of uh, William Ponsonby. Uh, you have to also imagine something which I can't show you but very briefly, which is that the image of Ponsonby, the cameo that Notter did, is, as I said, this big. But the image of Ponsonby is enormous. So there's a huge, this is from an exhibition in 1922 in the Rijksmuseum, and you can see it's a very large painting. So in a sense, he's doing something that is enlarging this cameo, making a pastel portrait of it, sculpting the pastel into a very large image. It's a, that's one of the reasons also that it's absolutely unique in that particular way. And this is, of course, one of the sources that we have for the wonderful portrait of Everard Faulkner that you see now in the exhibition at the, in which Faulkner, the same Faulkner who was the British ambassador, is now represented as a cameo, as a jewel, but also in a very large uh, image, as you can see. I have to show you what uh, Marianne Stevens and I saw when we were doing research on this particular portrait, which is in the V&A. Uh, we saw it in the depot, and when we saw it, it looked like this. It was covered completely over. The only part we could see was this part, and we thought it was just this portrait. We had no idea that there was a backing, that there was this color, at the, uh, that there was a shadow here. We saw no ribbon, a completely different painting. 
Uh, we only noticed that when the Victoria and Albert agreed to lend the portrait and they opened the cover, they opened the frame in the back to prepare the portrait for transport and discovered a completely different painting. And a very original painting, once again, on the part of Lyotard. Uh, Faulkner, of course, uh, would die in misery. He, he died without any money. Uh, he was also involved, by the way, in the Chelsea porcelain factory, which was indebted to the Duke of Cumberland, who was the boss of Everett Faulkner. He was the secretary to the Duke of Cumberland. So the idea of painting perhaps a kind of medallion cameo image like this may have been induced by the way in which he made his living at the last part of his life through the Chelsea factory. But also important, of course, is the wonderful portrait of Lady Faulkner, which I hope you have had a chance to admire in the exhibition, a marvelous piece. As you look at this, I want you to notice a few things. First of all, she is uh, the wife of Faulkner. She, she, she was married to Faulkner in 1747. She was 21, he was 63. Um, what I want you to notice, among other things, is how very difficult it must have been to do that veil in black. Black, you know, is a color that creates holes in a canvas or on paper. It's not a color that is easy to use or easy to define. Uh, it's virtuoso on the part of Lyotard to do that. Please notice also that in her hand over here, she's holding a thread. Now, you know, Lyotard did not have to do this. It isn't essential for the portrait at all to have all of these little details, but how much it adds to the portrait. This is something that's really, really important in understanding aspects of Leotard's art. And you can see it in some other portraits that he did here, the portrait of Mrs. Garrick. I compare it with a uh, wonderful pastel by Catherine Reed around the same time. How very, very human, how very lifelike Mrs. Garrick appears next to her own portrait, which has no soul at all. No animation. This is just an image of the figure. This is also what we find when we get to Lady Spencer, Lady Charles Spencer, nay Mary Beauclerk, as you can see here, 1754. She's 21 years old. At the right is the portrait of her by Joshua Reynolds. When we look at these two, you can see how very official, how very conservative this portrait is, and how very uninteresting in many ways in revealing the character of this sitter as compared to Leotard's portrait that you see there, those wonderful red ribbons. And obviously, when I look at a portrait like this or when I look at the portrait of the, uh, the Duchess of Hartington and you can see her compared with the portrait of her, it almost doesn't look like the same figure, by George Napton, when I look at a portrait like this and I see that arrangement with the red and I see the way in which the colors come together, I wonder who selected the clothes. Was it Leotard or was it the sitter? Uh, I wonder how the conversation went between the patron and the portrait painter. How will you paint me? How would you like to be painted? I think this, I think that. It would be very fascinating to be able to delve a little into this, but that is another study. The Madame Hardington here, who would die at the age of 23, uh, was of course the daughter of 
Robert Boyle, the third Earl of Burlington, who built Burlington House, which you see here in its, oh, I say Chiswick House, but I forgot to erase it, sorry. It's Burlington House on the left and Burlington House here. And this is the 18th century, about 1727, how it looked at that time and how it looked as you enter the Royal Academy without the trees of Wei Wei. Uh, and without the third story. This is 1855. She lived here, and she was, of course, uh, very important to see it in this particular context. It was only in 1867, by the way, that the Royal Academy moved here. Simon Luttrell, at your left. He never went to the Orient, but Leotard dressed him as such. And again, I wonder if it wasn't simply Simon Luttrell who said, I want to be this way. It's customary to think of this as being very chic to be a la Turc at this particular moment. But I wonder in the case of Simon Luttrell, who was a member of the Hellfire Club, notorious for drinking, for sex, for diabolical rites, I wonder if he doesn't want himself to be portrayed as an oriental caliph as a symbol of the libertine experience that they think was the case in the East. What I'm comparing it to at the right is a print of a poem by a man by the name of uh, William Combe, which was published in the London Magazine in 1777. It's the same Luttrell who is now, oop, I am very sorry, the same Luttrell who is now an older man here in front of the devil. Um, Luttrell claimed that he wanted to be king of hell. And <clears throat> there were other contenders for that title, <laughs> including Lord Littleton that we see here. When he announced his candidature, all of a sudden in the work that William Combe, and it's illustrated here, said, Latrell cried out, but as he spoke, there issued from the crowd, Earnham, the base, the cruel, the proud, and eager cried, I boast superior claim to hell's dark throne, and Earnham is my name. And that's exactly what is being represented here. His reputation was that of the next king of hell. To see him represented in this rather benign manner by um, by Leotard on the left in an oil rather than a pastel is of course once again an interesting uh, question arises about who decides how the portrait will look. When Leotard left London in 1754, 1755, he continued to have English patrons. Of course, Lord Mount Stuart is one of the most famous examples. This he painted in 1763 in Geneva. Uh, Mount Stuart was on his way to Italy, Grand Tour. I show it to you here in relation to the preparatory drawing that Leotard made of uh, Mount Stuart. And the drawing is about the same size as the pastel, which is now in the Getty Museum, about a meter and 15 centimeters. Um, we know a great deal about Mount Stuart. Afterwards, he would meet James Boswell in London, in uh, Italy, I should say. Boswell would refer to him as he liked to look at himself like another Narcissus, and that's exactly the way in which uh, Leotard had painted him. Uh, but it is splendid. It is absolutely splendid. And once again, it is regrettable that we can't have it for the exhibition. But it is one of the great portraits of the century. The pose that you see here is probably 
probably uh, an echo of Alan Ramsey's portrait of Mont Stewart's father, the Earl of Butte, that you see here with the legs crossed, very casual, but at the same time, uh, very, very beautifully painted. And if we take a look also at the detail, we see that behind there's a screen, and on the screen, of course, is the Chinese figures. This is something that still needs a great deal of research. Uh, this is a drawing room in Geneva, probably from the Pictet family, and once again, we have to have more information on where and how the, the work evolved. But you can see that the Chinese screen, there are Chinese characters, which we will again find on Leotard's work in this marvelous um, still life, which was lent by the Getty uh, here. Now, Leotard would come back in 1773 and 74. Uh, he was at this time 70 years old, 71. Uh, he, again, Bessborough, William Ponsonby, would be a factor, an important factor. Once again, Ponsonby also aged, and you can see here the portrait of him by John Singleton Copley, the American painter. Uh, the portrait is now in the Fogg Museum. And uh, once again, another version of uh, the image of Ponsonby is a very gay, very frivolous uh, libertine in here in his oriental costume. But at this particular time, he had also commissions that he wanted Leotard to make, including the portrait of his son, Frederick, whom you see here, painted at the age of 15. Uh, it was exhibited here in the Royal Academy in 1773. And at the right, you see a portrait of uh, Ponsonby at the age of 22 by Richard Cosway. Ponsonby, by the way, would be the one, this Ponsonby, Frederick Ponsonby, the third earl, would be the one who sold all of the antiquities and sold all of the paintings in order to get out of gambling debts in 1801. Uh, an absolute shame. But you can see that Ponsonby here is holding a porte-crayon, and this is because he did have a very great interest in drawing, and it is supposed that Leotard may have given him some lessons in drawings. These are two examples of Ponsonby's drawings, uh, both of them about 1780. But it wasn't the children of Ponsonby that is the most important element of Leotard's commissions through Ponsonby in his second London voyage. It is the portraits of Clanbrassel. This is James Hamilton, the Earl of Clanbrassel. Two portraits, the one on the left, 1773, the one on the right, 1774. He was also a very, very dear friend of Ponsonby's. He was one of Ponsonby's agents in terms of collecting. He lived in Paris a great deal, and it was through Clanbrassel that he was able to get some of the antiquities for his collection. Both of these are fine, but the one on the right is, has to be seen as being very far superior, not only because of this wonderful composition, see it again, whole, with the shadow, as we see in the portrait of Madame Favard uh, in the exhibition, and the exquisite detail of that hand that comes down. But it is also the more important because we have to see it in the context of the portrait with his wife. This is, again, a double portrait. Uh, his wife is Grace Foley, whom he married in 1774. She was actually a cousin. Uh, among others, and they were meant like the two portraits of the Tellesons that you see upstairs. They were meant to be seen together in this way. Both of these works could not come to the exhibition there in Zurich at the moment. 
Grace Foley at the right, Clan Brassel at the left. When you see the details, you can again see how absolutely miraculous, even at the age of 71, 72, he was working his pastels with a great, great deal of, comme on dit en français, maîtrise. Beaucoup de maîtrise. What a, a detail that I particularly admired when I saw it for the first time was the book. When you can see the spine is indented, showing that it was taken and pushed a little bit, you can really get that sense of how great was Leotard's eye. It was also in this portrait that the prominence of the inscription comes more and more to the fore. You never lose the fact that Leotard did it and that he was 71 and a half years old. <laughs> and this is, something, this is something that he will do with his later still lives as well, as you can see here. This one, Leotard, in his 80s already. This is something that's very, very interesting because it shows you once again that the portrait is important, but so is the artist who did it. And one will never forget it. Just quickly, at the time that he was in London for the second visit, he was, in fact, um, here to do other things. He was here to sell his collection, and he was here to exhibit at the Royal Academy. But I must tell you that it was not here that he exhibited. The Royal Academy he exhibited in was the first Royal Academy, which was in Pall Mall, 125. Doesn't exist anymore. I show you the image. If you can just picture where it is here, if you go a little to the right, you'll see Carlton House and the Carlton House Gate. This was the original Royal Academy, um, which would then go to Somerset House. But the, the, it was in the original Royal Academy that all of the exhibitions took place until 1780. They were not transferred to Somerset House until after 1780. So, and I show you at the right uh, an image by uh, a Swiss painter, by the Anglo-Swiss painter, by the name of uh, Michel Vincent uh, Brandouin which is the only image that we know of the interior of the Royal Academy in 1771. He's showing the room which is here at the top. There's a clear story here which you can see the light coming down and how the pictures were accumulated. Every centimeter was accounted for, as you can see. And what he showed was, oh, quick time. Well, okay, what he showed was one of his own self-portraits, which you can see here. Uh, he showed four of them, and at the same time, they were all grouped together as just portraits, and it was Walpole who identified all of them in his copy of the catalog. Walpole thought this image of him here without a beard, very, very interesting, this man now in old age. He, Walpole said that it was a very, very, very bold, as indeed it is to show him at that particular way. But perhaps the portrait that is perhaps the most interesting that he showed was, of course, that wonderful laughing portrait, which we see here. And he showed it in the exhibition of 1774. I suppose that this is one of the most enigmatic of Leotard's images. Uh, you can see here that it is copied to some degree from images of the self-portrait of, of um, Quentin de la Tour, which other painters copied, including uh, um, the painter Marie-Suzanne Giroust, who was the wife of the great Swedish pastelist Alexander Roslin. But ultimately, we wonder what does that mean? What's happening? It takes us back into the realm of trying to identify what is going on. But when you look at Leotard's portraits, you can see also that there are some very interesting anomalies. Uh, this, the portrait of Ponsonby as a cameo 
projected large. Uh, the other portraits, different in the way in which the painters of that time did, that I showed you in relation to Napton, in relation to uh, Joshua Reynolds. Here you can see he's really looking at us. He's not a very handsome man. He's missing a tooth. He's pointing at something that we don't know anything about. And he's laughing at us. Now, laughing images in the 18th century are not all that common. But when they are, they often refer to Democritus. And I'm showing you an example here by the Dutch painter, Johannes Paulus Marlsee. Is Leotard showing us that he is Democritus, the Democritus of our time, the laughing philosopher? Frankly, I have no idea. I suppose, quite honestly, that he's just laughing at us. As in this portrait by Joseph de Creux, around the same time, a little bit later, actually, a self-portrait pointing out at us and laughing at us. That's all we need to know. When I see that portrait and I see him laughing at us, I say to myself, I really would have liked to have sat down and had a conversation with him. <laughs> I would have liked to have known what he thought about his art, about his times, about the sitters. And I think, like Garrick, I would have been very, very greatly amused. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.